Marsh, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing excellent. Are you uh, sad you don't have a couch to sit on? Are you, uh, huh? are you sad you have a hard bench over there? I'm okay. <laughs> I'm happy. Tonight we're going to be talking. Um, <laughs> don't be bitter, Marsh. I'm not bitter. Talking about where the world is going. And there are some mega things happening in our, our world as we know. Uh, but though they're happening in Afghanistan and in the Middle East and the Philippines, uh, they affect us right here in our backyard. Uh, I'm taking my eight-year-old daughter on a trip this weekend, and we're talking about flying. And she says, well, you know, Dad, I haven't flown since 911." I thought, man, even an eight-year-old is impacted in that way. Marsh, what are you seeing in your youth group uh, since September 11th? Are they more serious? Are they more frivolous? What kind of impact is it having? Well, I think initially everybody was more serious. But I still think uh, what we're seeing happen is just students taking life seriously. Hmm. And uh, one of the things recently, we have a, a girl in our ministry that this is just to give you an example of why I think things are pretty pretty radical right now in a good way. But I think um, there's a girl that, that came up and she her dad said, you can have a car this summer or you can go on a mission trip this summer. Hmm. And she said, you know what? Time's short. I want to go on a mission trip and tell people oh, about Jesus. Great. That's great. Great. We have an Internet question from Scott, and he asks an interesting question. He says, I have two small children, a boy three and a girl one. What is their world going to be like 10 to 15 years from now? What can I do to prepare them? Wow. Hard question. But the facts are, as we're going to see unveiled tonight, that things are going to get worse and worse. Now, we don't want to hear that, but you have to hear the flip side of that story, Scott. Um, it's not the end of the world. It's the end of this world and the start of a new one. And you've got to keep the whole, whole picture in mind. But the fact is um, we don't know God's timetable. Heaven's economy is much different than ours. We, we could have a, a day, a thousand days, or a thousand years. And we ought to live with that perspective. And the principles, Scott, for training your children are the same as they've always been. And they are rooted in the Bible and in investing your life in them and sacrificing on their behalf. And when you do that, regardless of the circumstances, whether it gets worse or it gets better, or we have a time of prosperity or whatever might come, uh, you'll reap a harvest. The Bible guarantees good fruit as a function of that. Uh, for our guest tonight, we have invited somebody who has a well, three decades of experience in dealing with children and seeing some pretty hard cases. I've known Nick for a number of years. He was the um, supervisor over at the Youth Detention Center. He's been warden of a maximum security juvenile facility. Would you please welcome Nick Gonzalez? Welcome. You can squeeze through there. There we go. And if anybody can tell us about social trends re regarding children, regarding crime, and how we can touch them and help them, this is the guy. Nick, give us some uh, background on just an overview of your experience. Okay, great. Good to be here. Quite an outfit here. I, uh, <clears throat> when Chip asked me about it, I hadn't been here for a while. I'd been traveling, and I come back, and I see this thing here, and I thought it's I a whole had new world. church. Yeah. <laughs> been around a long time. Uh, just, uh, just a few months, actually about six months after my conversion, the Lord directed me into uh, prison work. I thought initially that I'd gotten a job in corrections because that's the only place that would hire a guy with a political science degree. 
But in about a six-month period of time, I realized, you know, that God had actually sent me to that place. And then some months later, he revealed to me without any question that he had called me into this work. So prison work became my ministry, and it continues to be my ministry. Uh, I started off at the state penitentiary. I was, I had the misfortune, actually, of being through the uh, riot situation that took place in that place uh, in 1980. I started actually in 1973, but I was one of the people that the district attorney asked to go in there and identify at least 30 of the 33 bodies that were there in that unit because I had supervised that unit at one time. So I've seen the end result of, uh, of juvenile delinquency when it's taken to the nth degree and you end up in prison. And then from there I went on and became the director of state juvenile parole. I did that for about a decade, and then I went into being a superintendent or a warden of juvenile institutions. I was the uh, superintendent of YDDC, the Youth Diagnostic and Development Center here on, on uh, Edith Boulevard. And Calvary Chapel was very helpful to me in sending me plenty of volunteers to do some work there. And then later on, uh, Heather Wilson, who is now a congressman, Heather Wilson, who was then... Uh, the cabinet secretary for the for uh, children, youth, and families department asked me if I would come and open up the maximum security facility for boys. It's a juvenile correctional facility that is more maximum than any adult correctional facility that we have in the state. It was, I mean, state-of-the-art maximum security uh, system. So I opened up that facility, and uh, I received what they called at that time, and maybe some of you remember reading the headlines, facility opens up for the worst of the worst. So I was called the superintendent of the worst of the worst. So that's been my experience. I retired two years ago. Uh, I'm living proof that a person can uh, spend a career in corrections and still be sane after all that. So I retired a couple of years ago, but I continue to do juvenile work and other kinds of work. Uh, actually, right now I'm even an investigator for the attorney general's office looking into I'm um, mismanagement of adult correctional facilities. And then I do some work with uh, Don Compton and the Shalom Ministries, which is which a real lifesaver for me. Those people were there when I needed them from the very beginning, and, and they provided so much support for me. And that's been my, uh, in a nutshell, Nick, my let me career. let me ask you, three decades of experience, how have the teens changed in the course of that time? Uh, you could ask that question of any warden in the state penal system or any superintendent in the juvenile uh, uh, correctional system, and they'd give you an answer right away. It's changed dramatically. Uh, even 20 years ago, the type of kid that you got into the institution was a kid that was workable. They, uh, there was some hope for them. That, uh, you know, you could do, make some progress, and there was some level of stability in them coming in. And the type of juvenile that we have been receiving now is, is really difficult to deal with. Uh, basically, uh, what the scripture calls the reprobates, meaning these kids are so gone and, uh, and so dangerous that they're called now super predators. They destabilize their institutions, and many of these find their way into adult corrections as young prisoners, and they really destabilize even the adult facilities, the old cons. The old prisoners themselves will tell you that they no longer feel safe. The old order of uh, living a penitentiary life is gone because of these super predators that are finding their way in there. It's a different kind of 
of, of commitment. What altogether. kind of return rate do you see from uh, teenagers, their kids really, who, who are released <clears throat> from YDDC? What kind of success rate do you have? It's a, a very minimal success rate, uh, not only in the juvenile but in the adult system as well. And all across America, the success rate is very, very minimal. I think it's something like 70 to 75 percent return rate. That means kids go back out there, reoffend, and find themselves back into a, in an institution. By the time you see a, a, a teen in one of these facilities, how many crimes have they committed? Uh, generally, by the time that they, this judge finally can't put up with them anymore and the community can't put up with them anymore, they've usually committed an average of four major felonies. Those are just felonies alone. And then they have a string of misdemeanors and all kinds of other uh, nuisance type of offenses. So they have been, uh, to a good degree, a scourge on society before they arrive at our institutions. But you, you have seen success stories. Uh, give us an example. Let's see, and then there was, <laughs> uh, there have been uh, success stories. There really have been. Uh, uh, the state, as you know, is a, a handles or provides treatment that is secular-based. Uh, and so it's a treatment that aims at tra or, uh, reforming the individual, helping the individual to change his life under the power and the ability of his own human nature. And most of our programs are geared that way. So there are people, there are people that come through our system that reform themselves to the point where they don't reoffend, but their lives are still in so much disarray that they go out there, they make it, they don't reoffend, but they produce the next generation of delinquents that comes into our system. One final quick question. What can a parent here tonight do to, to ensure as much as possible that their children don't end up in that system? Okay. I think the majority of the kids, if, if, if I could open up a file for you, of, uh, and I've seen thousands and tens of thousands of files from these individuals that I work with, if I could open up a file to you and summarize it in two words, that file, that, those two words would be angry and discouraged. Anger and discouragement. The delinquency really begins in the home. Uh, kids who do not have the direction and the guidance and especially the spiritual guidance from the, from the parents that they should, develop an anger against those parents that eventually locks them out from the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 6, Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live a long life on this earth. The opposite of that, if you don't, if you dishonor your father and your mother, it will not go well with you. Well, this anger of seeing parents that are not living up to the standards that God has placed on them causes anger and discouragement in these kids that discouragement causes them to become failures in most areas, most elements of their life, eventually leading up to delinquency and eventually uh, leading up to a commitment in an institution. So angry, anger and discouragement is the thing. You have the ability to do that as a parent to stop that. He says in Colossians chapter 3, I think it's verse 21, it says, Do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. And parents, I can tell you this, when you do not walk in obedience to God, you have already sown the seeds of destruction in your own children. It's as simple as that. I have seen it. I have dealt with it all my life. So the power is in you. As you become obedient to God, God creates that gravity, that spiritual gravity in the home that keeps the children uh, on a spiritual plane. Remember the Scriptures even admonishes people that aspire to be elders or deacons, he says, 
those that rule their own homes well, keeping their children in subjection under all gravity. So you create that gravity through your obedience. It gives you the confidence and the wisdom to raise your children. It causes your children to be rejoicing with you, causes them not to be anger, causes them to find the grace of God by which they can prosper. Simple spiritual principles, but believe me, there is nothing better out there. You won't find anything better than God's Word to be able to help you to keep your children. So the, the opposite... And yes. <clears throat> the exact opposite of anger and discouragement is loving discipline. Well, Nick, we certainly appreciate the investment you make in these kids, and we appreciate you. I wanted to say, by the way, we have to welcome an audience outside these walls tonight. Would you say hello to our radio and worldwide web audience right now? And let me say to them, those who are on the web right now, you can send a question here uh, this week or any week, and the address on the web is lineonline.net. Thanks again, Nick. Marsh, one more song. My pleasure. It's part of God's plan. No one knows when this age will end. But as we will see tonight, our generation is being swept along by powerful currents, trends that deserve our attention and our response. So what if? What if you knew that you only had 24 hours left, that this was your last night on earth? Grab my girl, grab my dog, drive up into the hills, set a nice campfire, sit out and watch the stars and uh, think about things. Make peace with God, my friends, and my family. It's real easy. I spend it with my son. I have an eight-year-old son, so that's what I would do. Just have fun with him. Well, it's not enough time to do anything spectacular, so I think I'd probably get a half gallon of wild turkey and a carton of cigarettes and enjoy myself. If I had 24 hours to live, I would gather my family together, and with them we would praise the Lord, knowing we were going to be with Him in 24 hours. I would do pretty much what I'm doing right now. I believe that we should be living our life as if every, every day is our last day. In fact, I encourage our people, I encourage myself to live as if the Lord was coming back in the next five seconds. Oh, he didn't come back in those five seconds, but we should always be living as if he's coming back in the next five seconds. So I would do very little, but if I only had 24 hours left to live, I would continue to serve here at Calvary Chapel Santa Fe. I would continue to love my wife. I would continue to stay in touch with my daughter off in college. I would continue just to love the Lord, awaiting expectantly for that moment when I would see him face to face. Where is the world going? People are asking or should be asking that question. Uh, for an answer, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin this evening in verse 3, where we find a, 
Well, for a lot of people in the world, what is considered a negative, pessimistic, doom and gloom scenario. Because when you talk about prophecy and the apocalypse and all the rest, you have that vision. And let's face it, the church has been guilty from time to time of overstating the prophetic case, failing to make a distinction between observing cultural decadence and recognizing what is the final great global evil spoken of here. You see, not every volcano, not every earthquake, not every war is a sign of the end. Very often the church has taken that and accelerated these things that are happening in our world and made them into an end time scenario when it didn't deserve it. Because we can be certain that the Christians in Rome, in the Dark Ages, in Nazi Germany, were all pretty well convinced that their days were the final days. The circumstances certainly justified that conclusion, or at least that observation. And we make a similar observation in our day. But I, having given that caution, have to say there are certain combining and converging trends that at the very least make this a unique time in history, possibly the time in history. But first of all, let's define our terms about the end of the age because it is a biblical given that we have been granted a finite amount of time on earth for human government. Jesus said in Matthew 13:38 and following, interpreting one of his parables, that the field is the world, the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, the angels are the reapers who will come at the end of the age. He further said in Mark 10 that no one who has sacrificed for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come. So Jesus assumed an end to this age. And he wasn't the only one. Those around him shared that assumption. As he sat one day in the Mount of Olives, his followers came to him and said privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of the end of the age? And so this is the age of human government. This is the time of free moral decision. This is the time when the door of God's grace is open. This is also the season of the prince of this world. But I must remind you once again, this is not the end of the world. This is not the end of all worlds. This is the end of our world as we know it. And the start of a great new world with, uh, shall we say, many new and improved features. And this time of human government has taught us a great lesson. I think that part of the reason we are where we are is for God to make a, a final non-negotiable point that we can't do it ourselves at many different levels. We learn these great lessons from the age of man. Imperialism has not worked. Fascism, monarchies, democracies, republics, communism, socialism, naturalism. 
Where have they gotten us? We've lived in communes. We've built great cities. The machine age, the computer age, the space age. God leaves no doubt. All the ingenious inventions of the mind and creativity of man. And where are we at tonight, 6,000 years later? I would submit to you not one step further along the road to world peace than we were on the day that Cain killed his brother. And so, after 6,000 years, you might think that we have, would have evolved to some utopian community. But that is not the case. The 20th century, for example, in World War I and World War II alone, outside of the Korean conflict, the Vietnam War, untold thousands of border conflicts and various rebellions, 65 million dead from the wars to end all wars. And in point of fact, they weren't world wars. There are two great wars coming, the Bible tells us, that will in fact be world wars that actually will make World War II pale by comparison. But that remains to be seen. No, we are not one step further. In fact, Bertrand Russell rightly observed, the world has been shaped by nearly 6,000 years of warfare. You've probably heard the statistic before. I'll repeat it for you now. In, in over 55 centuries of recorded human history, we have managed less than 292 years of world peace. And 2002 does not appear to be one of those. No. Get this. The military, the annual military expenditure on military weaponry worldwide on an, animal, on an annual basis is exceeding now $800 billion. So that's why I don't think it's a negative thing to look to a new world where the Bible says we'll study war no more, beat our swords into plowshares, and invest our ourselves into things positive that will benefit mankind and not seek to destroy mankind in the most efficient manner possible. We must also comment on the, the wild card in that mix of things that exist during this time of human government, and that is Satan, the evil one, because we know that he is called the prince of this world, the god of this world elsewhere. In fact, when he confronted Jesus one day, he offered him all the kingdoms of this world. Now, Jesus declined his offer. I think we can observe, sadly, many men and women have accepted that offer, traded their souls for the things of this world. And so, although many throughout history have surely thought their time was the end time, there are these interesting trends converging together to make this time a special one. Well, look at our text tonight. In verse 3, we have mockers and scoffers. And they say, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Let's stop right there. Because that's a good question. Where is the promise of his coming? Now, they aren't asking it genuinely, but let us ask ourselves. Where is the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ? Three places we can find it at least. First of all, of course, in Scripture. We find 
dozens, hundreds of references woven in and out of Scripture about the second coming, the millennial age, the need to prepare, to invest, to plan, to look up. Jesus said, watch, you do not know what time. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. So we find in Scripture the promise that Jesus would return, that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And then hold up the headlines of any newspaper today, and what do you see? Ask yourself honestly, which way are we going? What is the general direction of mankind in the year 2002 as a function of the current events we are living through today? And if you're honest with that answer, it's not a positive curve. There are many troubling and deeply disturbing trends we're going to analyze tonight, but the end of that curve, I hope you'll agree, is an encouraging one. And then finally, undoubtedly, Israel. Israel. I mean, imagine just for a moment any other book written millenniums ago by men who never talked with each other, lived on different continents, and yet they accurately predicted the social environment, the political climate, the military arrangement, the spiritual condition of the world in our age. I defy you to find one example in Scripture where prophecy is incorrect about setting the table, about laying out the stage and the groundwork for our current condition in the year 2002, especially, particularly, the absurd emergence of the nation Israel. 70 A.D., the legions of Titus march into Jerusalem and level the city. They change the name. They forbid Jews to even be in Jerusalem for some time. They, they make it into a complete Roman colony. And yet, and yet, despite the efforts of Adolf Hitler in World War II, in 1948, the United Nations, against all odds, partitioned the British-Palestinian area, and Israel was reborn. Remarkable. Unbelievable. What other book would have the nerve to predict specifically, as Ezekiel 37 and elsewhere does, that Israel, this little nomadic tribe of desert people, would spring up in the middle of enemies called the Arab states? Now, what is the condition of Israel today? It is surrounded by a landmass of Arab states with 500 times the land size. In fact, if you took the nation Israel and overlaid it as a template on the eastern seaboard of the United States, it would be about the size of New Hampshire and is surrounded by enemies who don't want peace with Israel. They want a peace of Israel, peace by peace, until the Jews are annihilated and driven into the sea. That is the agenda. Don't believe anything else you hear in terms of propaganda. That is the doctrine, the ultimate goal of all of the Arab states. They are the cup of trembling that Zechariah warned about. Now, what would happen in North America if all of the United States declared war on New Hampshire? That's the equivalent of what's going on in the world today. And what are they saying? Give us your land and we'll give you peace. We'll recognize your right to exist. Now, what is wrong with this picture? You already have 500 times more land than we do. 
But we have to give up our little sliver of land in places Israel would be eight miles wide in some of the borders they're trying to move them back to, virtually indefensible borders. That's not our major focus tonight. It will be in weeks to come here line on line, but it is certainly an element we have to observe. You might say, oh, that could never happen to Israel in these modern days with the United Nations to protect her. Have you heard of something called the Holocaust? Six to eight million Jews methodically annihilated at the hands of Nazi Germany in the attempt to create a utopian Aryan state in the Third Reich. Well, mega changes are coming, but they can be observed in terms of trends at the headwaters. You can tell what's going to flow downstream by going upstream and see where the water comes from. And today, trends are combining, as I say, and converging in such a unique way that taken individually, it's disturbing. Taken as a whole, it's mind-boggling. We have technology rapidly increasing, the ability to communicate. We have military hardware and weapons of mass destruction being built at a rate unheard of even a generation ago. We have geopolitical pressures and border wars all over, and these aren't being fought just now by bands of, of roaming pirates. They're by people who are armed with weapons of biological and chemical destruction, and furthermore, who are threatening to have nuclear capabilities in third world scenarios. Very troubling. We have also the advent now of what might seem like a contradiction in terms, but on the world stage, it's unavoidable to observe a violent religion, Islam. We've all had a crash course in the extreme radical edges of Islam. Now, we know that probably the bulk of the Muslim people are kind, generous, and, and peace-loving. But what does it matter if their radical leadership in perhaps 10 or 20 or who knows what percentile are sworn to destroy Israel and her big brother, the great Satan, which is us. So we know now that one in four people on earth are Muslims. Muslim growth in the past 50 years, 500%. Become a major factor in Great Britain, in Western Europe. For that reason, these nations have softened their attitude towards the Middle East situation and their support of our agenda in that region. And then we have catastrophes, diseases, famine, things that are happening either naturally or from an unnatural source. Nonetheless, the opportunity exists to sweep across the globe in ways unimaginable just a few years ago. Horrible diseases coming out of Africa, out of the Pacific Rim, that threaten our very way of life. These and many more trends are combining to create a dynamic never seen before on planet Earth. That reinforces and emphasizes my proposal to you that these are unique times. These aren't just another dark day in human history, that we live perhaps at the threshold of something terrible, but something magnificent. Let's look tonight in our text for seven reasons, and there are more. I, as I laid this out, somebody said, is that all you found? Well, no, it's all we have time for. But seven reasons why this age must end. And we find, first of all, that this flies in the face of conventional wisdom. Look at the rest of verse 4. For since the fathers fell asleep, 
all things, they say, continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Oh, really? Peter goes on to say, of this they are willfully ignorant, or they willfully forget. They choose to ignore the fact that God intrudes in human history. Our first reason is that Jesus and the prophets promised this age would end. We've seen some of that. Let me also quote John 14 for you. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would tell you. But I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. That in the end of this age, you may have an inheritance to fall back upon. There are many other scriptures. But listen, if you're doubting tonight in your heart, if you don't believe this scripture, you wouldn't change your mind if I quote 100. So let me read it again. Jesus said, this age will end. And he has gone to prepare a place for those who believe that fact and trust in his forgiving sacrifice. Think long and hard before you too willfully forget this biblical and eternal fact. Jesus promised this age would end. And then the fallenness of man. The fallenness of man is a huge factor as to why this age must end. And we can rejoice, frankly, in that. Now, here's a Bible doctrine that you can prove to be absolutely tangibly true in the comfort of your own home. The fact that you and all those around you are, in fact, fallen. Here's how we do that. Just observe your life. You see, it's it's easy, I think, for all of us to detect a constant distortion in the cosmos, in our little universes. Things just don't automatically go right now, do they? This is why we have managers. This is why we have more problems. Uh, This fallenness keeps us from experiencing perfection. We're always trying to put our world in order. Our life's always coming apart at the seams. That's a function of fallenness. The world, your body, this life. The Bible says all creation is groaning as a result of the fall of man. You cannot, you will not ever grasp the human condition without taking into account fallenness. You cannot overestimate its impact in your world and the world around you. Now, we have people who love nature, and I love nature. I love little fuzzy creatures. In fact, I saw one today out on Osuna, and he'd he'd been run over by a large truck. (laughs) That's what a fallen world is like. Oh, look at the little bunny. Oh, look at the big truck. And (laughs) the world is fallen. This is the kind of a routine wrongness that we experience on a daily basis. Look, this is not pessimism. This is reality. I'm not being cynical. This is really... It's a simple, a simple acknowledgement that the effects of the fall infiltrate everything we say, everything we do, everything we think, everything we've ever experienced, It's difficult even to imagine the liberty, the freedom we'll experience when the effects of the fall are gone. It's a a crushing weight in your conscience. 
It's an ominous cloud in everything you experience. But the day is coming when there'll be no more tears. And there's a new world, a new destiny, a new address, a new body. All these things he are make, he's making new in those mansions he's preparing. That's why I say this is not a pessimistic message. But the fall does explain many mysteries in the world. The mystery of natural evil, that the created world is now a hostile environment. You have to prepare even to go camping and take things and prepare for the world. And we had to conquer the pioneer frontier. Why? The world is hostile to us. There's natural evil. Even the animals have become our enemies as a result of the fall. There is moral evil in your heart. Man's self-destructive acts of continued wickedness prove that we inflict damage on ourselves and those around us by choosing evil, wickedness. The depravity, the depth of darkness in the human heart, the Bible says, cannot even be known. It's so awful. Take a canvas, paint it black. That's a picture of your heart in the unredeemed condition. Man's attempt, man's attempt, well, first of all, we must also put into that that mix spiritual evil. Um, Man's willing, unregenerate man's willing cooperation with the aggressive agenda of hell. That's spiritual evil. It's afoot today in the world. We see it everywhere. We find it in scripture. We find it in bookstores. You can find it in the media everywhere. Where man goes along with what Satan wants and what Satan says about our Father in heaven. Well, man's attempt, all of man's attempts at progress, really, medically, socially, politically, are all what? Feeble attempts to reverse the curse, to overcome evil, to conquer what's already here, either in our bodies as a function of decaying, in the world around us from our wrong choices, from our corporate decisions politically to live uh, contrary to God's will, Everything we're doing in terms of the U.N. and and legislatively are all really trying to do what God's already done. And to say on our own behalf, we can redeem ourselves. And so God says, well, go ahead. In fact, take 6,000 years. Do whatever you want to do. Let's see how you come out. And here we are tonight in this situation. And unless and until we surrender and acknowledge the effects of the fall and our complete inability to cope with them, that we are at their mercy, we're going to suffer greatly and continually. Well, we have the promises of Jesus, we have the facts of the fall, and then we have the existence of evil. Evil is in the world, and evil naturally expands. It is not an objective force, it's a personal one, it is pushed forward by the forces of hell, Satan, the powers, dominions, and principalities, spiritual wickedness, the Bible says, in high places. Evil expands. Uh, The thoughts during Noah's time we see here referenced uh, later in our text were continually wicked at all times. The Bible says evil is like leaven, like yeast. It infiltrates everything it touches and completely contaminates it. Uh, This introduces to us a fascinating principle I want you to focus on tonight. It's the principle of exponential growth. It's a neutral principle. It can and is used for both good and bad purposes. Take, for example, the invention of a new product, of a new toothpaste. That's a neutral thing, a good thing. But eventually, that, that product is 
proliferated, it is mimicked, it is distributed, and you have not one kind of toothpaste, but now we have like 250 literally in our country today. That is exponential growth of something neutral. But it takes on an evil aspect. What happens when it's not toothpaste, but a weapon of mass destruction? For many decades, the nuclear club on our planet was very close, very tight, only two members, America and the Soviet Union. Tonight it's expanded. Evil is expanding. The ability to, to do great harm to more people is now held by more countries than ever before. Evil naturally expands. It's never static. Now remember, we are surrounded by six billion free moral agents, each of them with the capacity for good or evil. Therefore, uh, that good in their heart is always inevitably contaminated, polluted, poisoned by the depravity in every single human heart. So get this, evil exists, evil expands exponentially because of the creative, dynamic nature that God installed in the human heart. Now, a more graphic illustration of exponential growth would be a disease called cancer. I think we understand that principle. One cell multiplying exponentially eventually takes over the host systems and makes it terminal. There's another component, though, to exponential growth I want you to consider. Evil exists, evil expands, but eventually evil explodes. What happened in Noah's day? All the thoughts, continually wicked at all times. Um, another good illustration of exponential growth would be emptying, if you can imagine, the Pacific Ocean. It's 64 million square miles, average of 14,000 feet deep. Empty it. Let's fill it back up again. Let's begin with one drop. Put one drop back in the Pacific Basin. And each time you begin to fill it, just double the drops. Then it's two drops, then four. At the 70th doubling, the ocean would be one-tenth of 1% 1 full. But at the 80th doubling, it would be full. That is the radical power of exponential growth. It applies to all of these principles. It applies to good, and it applies to evil. And we're seeing just the beginning horizon of that power in our world today, as touching the population growth curve, the environment, weapon systems, the economy, political unrest. It grows exponentially. It's a frightening prospect. If you don't know the whole picture, if you don't grasp the entirety of what's really coming down the road from the headwaters. Well, it's at work in our world today. This is why Jesus said, there shall be upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. It's important that he put that modifying phrase in there. We've always had distress of nations. That's a given because of the human condition. But when he said with perplexity, he, he meant with no way out. That once that ball gets rolling, the exponential momentum will make it unstoppable. And if you look at the growth curves of the areas I've talked about, it's frightening. Evil explodes. Illustrate quickly with three major villains from, from history. Attila the Hun, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein. They could all be twin brothers, evil geniuses. But Attila the Hun was a local villain because he had a horse and a bow and arrow. 
and he could only terrorize with his Mongol hordes the eastern steppes of uh, Asia Minor. On the other hand, Adolf Hitler had the benefit of the Luftwaffe, the Blitzkrieg, the Panzer divisions, and thus he terrorized not the whole world, but Europe, Asia, Africa. Ah, but Saddam Hussein on the scene now. Same kind of a man, but he now has weapons of mass destructions. Evil exists, evil expands, evil eventually will explode. And you don't want to be unprotected in that day. Well, look at verse 9 with me, would you please? For God's perspective, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's our fifth point. God has a place of ignition. God has, a, if you will, a, a flash point for his action. Babylon, Sodom and Gomorrah, early Israel, all found the hard edge of God's closed door of grace. This world will find it eventually as well. God has said, listen carefully, my spirit shall not always strive with man. That's a sobering warning that the day of grace will end. Thank God he's convicting us. If you feel the, the pressure on your heart from God's Holy Spirit, know this, he's striving with you. It may not always be so. Um, the best case in point, frankly, is up in verse 6. But the world that existed then perished, being flooded with water. Evil had expanded and exploded. God's judgment ignited, and he took action. He took action. Uh, this flashpoint is what one author called him in my studies the triggering of lethal systems of which there is no turning back. Where you reach the point of no return in God's economy where there, there's no turning back on it. And uh, there certainly are plenty of weapons in the arsenal of man to anger God greatly. The Bible calls it his cup of wrath. That each time man disobediently, flagrantly violates the law of God. It adds a, a drop to his cup of wrath. Someday, it will fill to overflowing, and at that day, he'll stop striving with man and bring us to our sixth point. He'll intrude upon the affairs of man. Before we go there, though, let's just think for a moment. We want to give full sway to the creative genius of the human mind. Where can we look tonight for hope. There's great talk about peace conferences and peace in the Middle East and peace, peace, in, peace in the, our time. Where can we honestly, rationally look for a source of peace in our world today? The United Nations? The United States? Now, we are the last superpower. The world looks to us and we can be thankful that God has preserved us on this platform. But we know in our hearts the moral condition of our country. We are not the hope of the world. Where can we look for hope? There's only one place, up. And God will not let us down. But he will intrude 
upon the affairs of man. Otherwise, the Bible says, you know, no flesh would be saved. Thank God he's willing to intrude into our history. Um, he has done it on a limited scale. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He has done it on a global scale. He cleansed the earth, as we see here in verse 6. He, in Noah's day, said, enough is enough. I'm starting over. Noah, get building. And as a function of that, we have enough warning of what God's perspective is on evil in his children's lives. He comes a point where he will not tolerate it any further. But here's some good news. Our seventh and final point of a reason why this age must end. The church is working. You see, the ultimate trigger is not so much evil. Jesus said the gospel will be preached in every corner of the earth, comma, and then the end shall come. So what is going to finally usher in the end of the age is the church, the obedience of the Great Commission. When the, the gospel has been preached to all the world, then the end shall come. Now, I have to grant you that the Bible does kind of hint we may have some help. Revelation talks about an angel preaching the everlasting gospel, uh, some Jewish evangelists along the way. But in any case, from the backside of the project, at the end of the day, the work gets done. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Every contribution you are making to the preaching of the gospel, every prayer you utter for a missionary, Every gift you give to Bible societies is contributing to bringing us one step closer to the end of this age. And for that, I say praise the Lord. Now, here are some positive trends we see. In Africa, 20,000 people daily coming to Christ. Been to Ghana. It's a remarkable thing, the interest and the hunger for the word of God. Uh, in India, 15,000 baptisms taking place daily. South America, 50,000 new churches opening on an annual basis. Eastern Europe, 50 million converts since the fall of communism. And then China. China. What a miracle. Closed in 1950 by Mao Zedong. And he couldn't have those Christians stay together, so he thought he'd disperse them all over the country. <laughs> when the doors opened... And Nixon went to China, we found a vibrant church, alive and well. And that brings to a point the positive aspect of exponential growth. Because Jesus said the kingdom of heaven on earth is like what? A mustard seed. And when it's planted, who knows how many new mustard plants are in it? Who knows how many new Christians come out of our efforts when we plant the word of God? And that is how the church is growing. That's the, the, the genius, the beauty, the power of the model Jesus has given us. When the word goes forth, the Bible says it never, it cannot come back void. So when we propel the word out to the world, we are planting those seeds and creating momentum that we'll never know its full effect until that final day. And then know this, God will be a debtor to no man or woman. Every single investment you have made will be returned to you with interest. And you can know that. Not one cup of cold water given to a 
a famine-stricken child will go unrecognized and unrewarded in that day. Well, this principle is at work in our lives. Uh, do yourself a great favor. Uh, you may even thank me someday for telling you this. Make those eternal investments now. Make a conscious, deliberate, anonymous effort to invest in God's economy eternally. You can never go wrong with that. It will, it will never come back void. You can be sure of that. There are also, however, some less encouraging... Well, let's phrase it this way. There's work to be done. Um, less than 1% of all Christian workers today are involved in evangelizing the unevangelized. Um, here it is. 6% of the world's population live in America. 90% of the world's Christian workers live in America. So we have the workers. The harvest is ripe. We need to stop preaching to the choir. We need to realize that the 94% outside our borders in that 1040 window and beyond so desperately need what so many of us, unfortunately, take for granted. Well, I think that speaks for itself. Remember this, though. Jesus said the gospel will be preached to the ends of the world. Um, we know it's a positive outcome because we have a report card, Revelation 7-9. The Bible says that after this, John looked up and there was a great multitude no one could count them. From where? From where? Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. They're in heaven. The church ultimately, by God's grace, with his power, succeeds. The church takes a lot of hits, a lot of bad raps about the church. But ultimately, the church is successful in fulfilling the great commission by God's grace. Well, let's review. Here's what we should learn from our text tonight, and we'll, we'll close with these thoughts. Man is fallen. Any arguments there? Women, too. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, man has failed at every level. But God has warned and shown us through Noah, through Sodom, and elsewhere that he will intrude upon the affairs of man. He has given us everything but a date. You may think, now wait a minute, come on. You don't know for sure that this is a generation that will see the end. And I would say to you, that's correct. But I'll also say to you, you don't know that it's not. Are you willing to gamble with that kind of an eternal risk? Let me ask you. What is the biggest surprise you've ever had, good, bad, or otherwise? What's the most shocking, stunning, heart-stopping thing that has ever happened to you? Only you know that. Keep it to yourself. Here's the point. For those who step into eternity without the positive promise, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ paid for them at Calvary by his death on the cross, there is a, a shock coming that no man can even describe. They will wake up and, well, you don't take my word for it. 
We have a, a snapshot from hell right in Scripture. The Bible tells us in Luke 24 about a wealthy man who woke up in Hades. And here's his report. Here's what he writes on his postcard from hell. There is torment. There is no relief. There is awareness of lost opportunity. There is deep regret over missing God's offer. And there's deep concern over those left behind. Read that passage for yourself. And then ask yourself, are you willing to run that risk? Well, there are three things I I promise to give you we should do in light of all these powerful trends converging in our time, in our day as never before, with a speed and, and, and momentum that may not be stoppable, may not be reversible. First of all, we find it in verses 3 and 4. Ignore those who doubt. They'll come scoffers. They may be in your own family. Oh, sure, Jesus is coming back. When Jeremiah was commissioned to go before Zedekiah the king and give the news that Babylon was going to take Israel captive due to their consistent disobedience, there were those prophets in the court of the king who said, Oh, no. Jeremiah is wrong. God would never do that. God would never act so rashly, so harshly. False prophets, scoffers, mockers. Ignore them. They're doubters. Um, Look carefully at verse 10 with me. The day of the Lord, what's the next word? Will come. The day of the Lord will come. It's inevitable. As a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat. Both the earth, and look at what's next, and the works, all the accumulated effort of human ingenuity, all the cities, all the technology, all the libraries, all the works will what? Burn up with it. Thus, we come to our next question, what we should do now as a result of the impending end of this age. It says, therefore, verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons? What kind of conversation? What kind of lifestyle should we carry on given the facts all these things will be dissolved? Well, you fill in that blank. You are the one who has to answer that question. You don't need anybody to tell you what we ought to be doing if we're mature Christians. It's obvious, the Great Commission, serving anonymously, giving generously, it's it's not a difficult thing to come to. A.W. Tozer said, look at it this way. Planet Earth is like a giant cruise ship leaving Liverpool for New York. It has a definite schedule, has a committed captain, has a crew that will assure its absolute arrival on schedule. You are the passengers. The arrival in New York is not in question. The only thing at issue, the only thing at issue is how you behave yourself on board during the voyage. Are you going to be in the casino? Are you going to hang out at the bar? All your discretionary time, recreation? Or are you going to be serving, down with the crew, finding out needs, giving yourself away, sharing God's love? That's the only thing in view tonight. How will you behave yourself in the meantime, because between point A, your birth, and point B, your final heartbeat, wherever, whenever that happens, oh, and it will happen, 
What manner of persons, what manner of person ought you to be? Think long and hard on that. And finally, number three comes from verse 12. Looking for and hasting towards the coming of the day of God. In other words, look up with passion. What are you, uh, what are you passionate about tonight? I'm not talking about what you're casually interested in. I'm not talking about your hobbies. I'm not talking about your recreation. I'm talking about in your heart. What's your passion? If you had to exclude everything else but that one thing in your life, what would it be? Now be honest with yourself. What are you passionate about? And if it's things that fall into verse 10, the works that will be dissolved, you need to rearrange your priorities on, on, on board. You need to rearrange the deck chairs of your life because those things will be dissolved. You see, unfortunately, many people play at their worship. They worship their work, and God is little more than a, a hobby they can take or leave on a Sunday morning. I don't think that's too harsh to say. I think it's an adequate observation. I think many of us spend time on what I call the planet lukewarm, where you can take or leave the things of God. You know, there's a great difference between being around the Word of God and being in the work of God. Draw that distinction. Be careful that you do. Well, a couple quick thoughts, and then we will close. God's going to interrupt our plans, and he's not going to ask for your permission. not going to check with your day timer, see what you have scheduled. Uh, what comes to mind when you hear that promise? God's going to interrupt your life radically, dramatically, finally. Um, some might say, hallelujah, come back, come soon, Lord Jesus. Others might say, um, could you wait a month so I can get it together? <laughs> what you're really saying, can you wait a while so I can begin living consistent with what I believe because I know I'm not? I have a dichotomy. I have, a, I have an amputation between my, my heart and my life. If that's you tonight, this is a night of changes. Recognize that emotional changes come quick and cheap. You can change your mind from day to day, from moment to moment. Life changes a little bit different. They require repentance. They require obedience. They require surrender, putting up the white flag and saying, God, I give up. Just like human government, the governing of my life by my inventions, has not worked. I surrender. I need to change. That's when God begins to work. That's when the grace of God begins to flow. And you see real, radical, measurable change in your life. If you have what we casually call besetting sins, if you're practicing sin, know there's a huge difference between the indwelling sin we all have and the entertainment of sin that is a self-destructive, self-inflicted open wound. That can change. That healing can begin by surrendering. We'll give you that opportunity tonight to take a moment to get before God and just say, Lord, here's, here's my white flag. Will you pray with me? Lord, we may emotionally and intellectually agree with these things, we may nod our head, but yet tomorrow, if we don't have your help, our lives won't change. 
I want to speak first to that person tonight who has been unaware of these truths, perhaps has been frightened by them, and the initial re response is to flee from you the worst thing you could do. I encourage you to open your heart right now to the saving grace of our loving Father who is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A turning of mind, a turning of soul, a changing of life. Just open up to God right now and say yes to Jesus. And I assure you by the accuracy of his word, he'll not let you down. But then I want to pray for those tonight whose lives have not been consistent with their belief system they would also run that white flag up their life and say, I give up. I need your help. I want your hope. And I want to trust your spirit to change my life. We don't need any displays. God sees you. God knows you. God has your number. Let him speak quietly.